Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have made them become real to us, because we believe there's a great deal of power in the scriptures, and the more real they are, the more we can draw on that power, and we certainly need it in these days. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm so happy to have back with me my my dear friend and uh, colleague and repeated guest, uh, Andrew Skinner, who we've introduced before, so maybe we won't say uh, too much in the way of introduction, but he's he's been a a friend, a mentor, a good, good, good man, a best-selling and prolific author, a dean of College of Religious Education, chair of ancient scripture, director of the Maxwell Institute, all sorts of things. But we're just going to say today, uh, as the holidays are closing, we're just going to say he's a good husband, father, and grandfather. And, and uh, I, I know that. And he, he also has an amazing wife. So welcome, Andy. Good to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, today, well, uh, maybe I'll, I've been trying to, to remember to be in the habit of telling ahead of time a little bit of what we're going to talk about. So today we're going to talk about John, um, John the Baptist, and his role as a forerunner, and and what that means, how that affects Christ's ministry, and and how we should uh, Christ's ministry, and so on, and just how we should understand that. So. Uh, with that introduction, a- Andy, why don't you just kind of uh, talk to us about some of the things you have in mind uh, about John the Baptist? Wonderful. Thank you very, very much. Uh, when we talk about John the Baptist, we are talking about one of the most extraordinary men to have ever lived. Uh, and that's because he possessed an extraordinary responsibility. Uh, as we know, uh, Heavenly Father was sending his beloved son to earth. As a mortal being, he was leaving his lofty throne as the great Jehovah, coming down to condescending to be with us. And so preparations for his birth, his arrival and mortality had to be just right. A forerunner uh, had to be appointed and prepared. And that preparation uh, took place in pre-mortality, as well as uh, in the early years of the Christian era. And, uh, and this forerunner uh, would come to earth in the midst of tremendous wickedness, uh, as we know from uh, many different uh, commentaries and comments by scholars and even uh, church leaders. I remember the statement of J. Reuben Clark, who said that uh, both John and Jesus were born into a, a world that was just horrendous in terms of its wickedness. And we see that in the New Testament. And, uh, and so this forerunner came uh, to uh, allow uh, the Savior to perform his uh, saving work. And, uh, and I guess the point that I would emphasize, if we can remember nothing else, is that this forerunner had to be an individual of towering spirituality, of tremendous strength, and, uh, and um, unconquerable or incomparable humility, like unto Jesus' own character. Uh, so that's uh, that's the thing that I would start us off with, is, is the preparation that went into having a forerunner sent to mortality. Uh, it is interesting to me to note uh, John's name in Hebrew, Yochanan, literally means Jehovah is gracious. And, uh, and that's uh, true in the case of John the Baptist. He's, uh, he's a preparer, he's a forerunner, he's a preparer uh, for uh, the Savior's ministry. 
uh, he is, uh, he's just an amazing individual and, uh, and one that I guess I associate with, uh, with humility. Uh, yes. John wanted to do only that, which he'd been sent to earth to do. And for that reason, um, he has been at least in the last several decades of my life, uh, a role model. Uh, so, uh, with that, um, we, we kind of, uh, have in mind that John was noted and, and uh, regarded by, uh, prophets that preceded him. When we think about, uh, who foretells of John, it's pretty impressive. Uh, as Latter-day Saints, we, we note that, uh, Lehi, uh, in his, uh, in his dream, saw the coming of this forerunner, the coming of John. And of course, uh, Lehi's son, Nephi, makes mention of John as the forerunner, the preparer uh, of the way. Isaiah, I think, foresaw uh, mm -hmm. in a glorious vision uh, the role that uh, John would, would play. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we note that Gabriel... Uh, who we understand to be the ancient patriarch Noah, came and announced uh, the birth, uh, the conception and birth of John to uh, his parents, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And the, the thing to note, uh, you, you, you may not agree with this, but I think the thing to note is that, is that uh, John was born of, of pure Aaronite lineage. Uh, the, the sons of Aaron, the descendants of Aaron, of course, held the role of priest uh, in, the, in New Testament times. And so John comes to uh, a couple that has been waiting a very long time for, for a child, and, uh, and that is important. Uh, let, let me start us off by quoting from uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Uh, which I think is in some way or in some form uh, quoted by all three synoptic authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So this is, uh, this is the way that, uh, that we understand John's mission and ministry. Quote, in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make, make his paths straight. So John is introduced to us as, as a forerunner. And as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Matthew in particular loves to do that, but uh, yeah. he, he's, that's how Matthew leads. Is this is the John's the fulfillment of the prophecy? Obviously, Matthew tells you the story, and then he tells you, and this fulfills it. But yeah. in this case, he leads with saying, "This is the fulfillment of this prophecy," and I'll tell you about it. <laughs> well, and that's a that's a good point to remember is that uh, Matthew loves to quote what we would refer to as Old Testament scriptures, passages that uh, are fulfilled in the coming of John the Baptist, and particularly in the coming of Jesus as yeah. the Messiah. So maybe upwards of a hundred quotations from the Old Testament we find in in Matthew, 
Uh, in this passage, uh, I, I love the imagery there because in this passage in Matthew chapter 3, uh, we find an allusion to the ancient custom of sending forerunners ahead of the royal entourage, or, or especially the royal chariot, uh, to proclaim the coming of the king or the dignitary, and uh, in so, so doing, clearing the pathway that the coming king will take, path, clearing the pathway of rocks and other obstacles, and then shouting words of of preparation as they went so that the people were ready to receive uh, the royal chariot or the royal entourage. And this practice uh, is actually attested in the New Testament and in the first Samuel chapter eight and in Isaiah chapter 62. So a lot of ways in which John fulfills uh, pro prophetic uh, comments, prophetic um of, of foreknowledge of uh, of his ministry um i, I think even with uh, and you noted uh you know that so we have all the what we would call old testament as you said prophecies and then you noted gabriel right and and yeah. who's an old testament being but he's he situated for and what we call the new testament but even then i love how and especially in in luke but you really get it in, in uh, both matthew and luke but you see john and the savior working in tandem even before they're conceived um that that you know that you have this uh back and forth between the story of the announcement or annunciation we call it or the announcement of john's birth and then the the savior's birth and then mary goes to see her cousin and that brings up that mary must also have some descendant of aaron uh, in her lineage right she's she's yeah. uh, at least partially that but um uh, mary goes uh to see elizabeth and really the first witness besides the angel that jesus is who he says he is is john who leaps in elizabeth's yeah. womb and yeah. uh and, and you just kind of get the back and forth between these stories that already shows you uh, with john being announced first right and being born first it already shows you this forerunner role and how he will work with the savior but that his primary uh, mission is to bear testimony of jesus which he starts even before he's born. Yeah. Uh, the scriptures, the New Testament describes him as being filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. And yeah. we see that portrayed uh, in the, these early narratives. Um, so, yeah, Luke, the gospel author, Luke reports the announcement of Christ's birth being preceded six months earlier by the angel Gabriel's declaration to Zacharias and Elizabeth that uh, that she would deliver a son in her old age. Uh, but that the important thing for her, and I suppose for us to remember, is that he would be an Elias, uh, mm -hmm. as it describes in, in Luke chapter 1. And, uh, and this, this term, Elias, is if ever there was a loaded term, it is this one, uh, Elias. Uh, and, and all of the Gospels uh, indicate that, that this is exactly what John did once he reached his, his maturity, is that he served as an Elias in different ways. He boldly proclaimed uh, to the leaders of his day that uh, his baptisms by water 
were a foreshadowing of preparation for the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost that would be performed uh, by the Messiah. And, and he, again, his humility in all of this, all of these uh, declarations and his boldness in proclaiming the coming of the Messiah is summarized in, in this statement we find in Luke, in uh, John chapter one and also in Luke chapter three. He it is who coming before me is, excuse me, he it is who's coming after me is preferred before me. Uh, he's, this is the most amazing thing about John, the powerful position that he occupied, the central position in the coming of the gospel to the earth uh, with the Messiah. He, he always deflects or defers the important things to the Savior's role. Uh, he's always one who wants to step out of the limelight and put Jesus squarely in the limelight. And I have so appreciated uh, that. And, and I'll say a couple of other things uh, momentarily. But I wanted to come back to, to this term Elias because it's used several different ways in the scriptures. And, and maybe this would be, uh, if we say anything valuable uh, in our discussions, maybe this will be one of the most helpful in our study of all of the standard works because of the way that Elias is used. And, and so I have not listed these in any particular order, but these are the ones that I, I, I try to discuss with, uh, with my students. Uh, and, uh, and, and they all are important for our understanding of the restored gospel in these latter days. So uh, I guess the first thing that comes to or came to my mind was that Elias is the name or name title of a messenger who appeared in the Kirtland Temple, committing the keys of the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham, section 110 of the Doctrine of Covenants. Uh, in the New Testament, Elias is the Greek form of the name Elijah. And I, I, I do want to say a couple of things about the connection between John and Elijah, but uh, not right at the moment. Um, it, the term Elias is a name title of an office in the priesthood whose mission it is to commit keys and powers in this dispensation of the fullness of time, such as Noah. Uh, who is mentioned in section 27 of the Doctrine and Covenants, or John the Revelator, who's mentioned in section 77 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So it's a name title of an office in the priesthood. Uh, Elias is actually a name title for one of the roles that Jesus um, performs in his mortal ministry as a restorer of the gospel. Uh, I think we have talked before about the fact that uh, the gospel was first revealed to Adam and then the other patriarchs and then uh, those pesky Israelites uh, rebelled against God and they made the golden calf and and uh, not only did things fall apart uh, spiritually but uh, God was actively involved in the removal of the Melchizedek priesthood uh, <clears throat> in the in the days of Moses section. 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, <clears throat> excuse me, and, uh, and it was the Savior himself who acts as a restorer 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a restorer of the Melchizedek priesthood, a restorer of the higher law and, and higher uh, rules and regulations, if you will, a higher covenants during uh, his mortal ministry. And, and that is uh, one of the unique contributions of the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, the JST John 1 verse 28, that we see Jesus as an Elias of restoration. Uh, Elias is a name title for one who performs a preparatory work as a forerunner, specifically in the person of John the Baptist. So all of that is to say these various uses of the term Elias may not be completely obvious when we read the scriptures, but if we keep in mind that the term itself is used in different ways, I think it enriches our understanding yeah. of all of the standard works. Uh, I, I, I don't know that anything you want to correct about that, but it seems to me that's an important principle to keep in mind as we study not just the New Testament, but all of the standard works. No, I very much agree. And I, I've, I've had a number of students who have found it confusing uh, without the explanation that you just gave. And so, you know, even even Elijah, who I mean, Elias is the Greek version of Elijah. She said, so whose name that comes from? Um, we think of his forerunner role as restoring uh, the keys in Kurland, which certainly is. But sometimes then we try to limit the idea of uh, Elias to that when it applies to so many other times as you've just outlined. Yeah, well said. And I, I, I hope that this will um, help uh, our listeners or our students to ap appreciate uh, the, the, the term itself and the way that's used so that there, it cleans up the confusion, if you will. Yeah. Um, so um, John's, John's early life is, is very interesting. Uh, because we do not possess a lot of information from non-LDS sources. The, the, the Bible uh, doesn't have a lot to say about John's early life. Uh, we, we suppose that John probably began his full-time ministry at the age of 30, as we believe did the Savior. This is the time when priests and Levites typically began their full-time service in the temple, according to Old Testament passages like Numbers chapter 3 and others. But we really don't know a lot about John's formative years uh, from the New Testament text. There's a, a non-LDS scholar by the name of Joan Taylor, uh, who has done a lot of work on John the Baptist and, and tried to write a uh, a biography of sorts of his. And, and if I can quote just a passage from her writings, because I think she gives the prevailing view among non-Latter-day Saint scholars about John the Baptist. And this is what she has to say. Uh, quote, John had a social context, uh, but it is not discussed by most of the primary literary material about him. He appears in the wilderness completely alone, untaught, unmarried, his older father and mother surely dead, without connection to any place, any relatives, or any sects, unquote. Well, if you had only um, the, the sources connected with the biblical text and apocryphal writings, then I, that would be 
the view that you'd come away with. But Latter-day Saints are so blessed to have restoration scripture that helps us to understand so much more um, about his, his life. And, uh, and this, I guess, is another point to emphasize is that from a Latter-day Saint point of view, the best commentary on the life of John the Baptist are the other standard works because there simply aren't other yeah. writings available to us. So again, the restoration is just so magnificent in helping us to appreciate the, the New Testament uh, as well. Um, some scholars, I think it's fair to say, believe that, uh, that John the Baptist was orphaned and then uh, was uh, raised by the Dead Sea Scroll community at Qumran on the northwest shore of the, of the Dead Sea, or at least visited there for a time. And uh, this understanding, I think, is or, or this proposal by uh, scholars, New Testament scholars, is based on the uh, aged condition of John's parents when he's born, uh, based on the tradition that the Essenes at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scroll folks, uh, took in orphans and uh, raised them. Uh, it's based also on the emphasis given to certain Old Testament texts and practices among the Qumran covenanters, the Essenes, when compared with descriptions of John the Baptist in the New Testament. For example, and, and this is part of the evidence that's that scholars uh, marshal to uh, to propose that John was raised or at least visited for a long time, the folks at Qumran. Uh, both the Essenes and John saw themselves as the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So the folks living at Qumran say, yeah, we're the ones being talked about in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Uh, if we, if you don't remember, we, we just read Matthew's quotation of Isaiah 40, verse 3. Quote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, unquote. Well, we see that being applied to John in the New Testament, John quoting it. But also, this was an important passage of scripture among the Dead Sea Scroll folks. So that's one piece of evidence. Um, in addition, uh, both John the Baptist and the Essenes at Qumran emphasized repentance. And that repentance was to be followed by ritual immersion in water. They called it ritual immersion. We would refer to it as baptism from the Greek word baptizo, which means to literally submerge. Um, <clears throat> both John and the Essenes believed in the coming of a Messiah. John believes in the coming of one Messiah. Apparently, the Essenes believed in the coming of two Messiahs and, and maybe others. I, I'm not sure, but at least two from their point of view. Uh, both John and the Essenes possessed intimate and intricate knowledge of the scriptures. And the Essenes also believed in a prophetic forerunner prior to the arrival of the Messianic, Messianic age. Uh, even with all of that, that scholars have put together to try to explain uh, something about John's origins. From a purely New Testament point of view, John's background remains 
uh, open to debate by biblical scholars who don't have the blessing of restoration scripture. And we, as Latter-day Saints, do, and, and, and this is not, from my perspective, this is not a point to brag about. This is a point where we can sally forth and, and help uh, those who are honestly seeking the truth to understand the richness of restoration scripture and how it, it even applies to um, the figure of, of John the Baptist. Um, I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but uh, but we understand from section 84 that uh, that John's uh, coming was prepared, uh, that John was baptized while he was yet in his youth, but that he was ordained by an angel at eight days of age to quote, this power to overthrow the kingdom of the Jews, to make straight the path of the Lord before the face of his people, to prepare them for the coming of the Lord in whose hands is given all, all power. That's uh, from section 84, verse 28. So, yeah, John had a significant uh, task uh, ahead of him, and, and uh, one has to just make the comment that the eighth day of John's life must have been a very busy one for the little guy because uh, we know that uh, that that was also the day on which uh, baby male children were circumcised uh, and became full-fledged recognized members of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, that was also, that eighth day was also the day that uh, John was given a father's blessing by uh, his father, Zacharias. And so many things happened uh, on that eighth day, but he really was given the authority and the mandate to, as the scriptures say, overthrow the kingdom of the Jews and prepare the people for the arrival of the Messiah. So I think that those are pretty significant uh, things. It's almost as if on that eighth day, uh, his father, Zacharias, who would be presiding over the, the breeze or the, the circumcision and so on, uh, gave him a blessing, but that his father in heaven sent a representative to give him a, a different father's, a heavenly father's blessing that day uh, in, in ordaining him and, and uh, really almost like a patriarchal blessing at the same time, telling him this is what you're about, which he uh, clearly I mean, at eight days, he's not going to understand that. But uh, I, I'm guessing that as uh, he matured, that the spirit continued to manifest to him that that's what his mission was. Uh, that I, th I thank you for emphasizing that point. Uh, I, I think that is a terrific insight that while his father did what fathers today are encouraged to do, that is to give their children names and a blessing. Uh, given a name and a blessing, uh, Heavenly Father uh, wanted to give his uh, his son's forerunner a special blessing uh, from the portals of heaven, and, and I love that. Uh, I, I'm also uh, grateful uh, for the example of Zachariah in the giving of his father's blessing because I think the structure of the blessing that Zechariah gives to, to John is instructive for fathers in modern times. 
the first part of Zachariah's blessing uh, to his son John was filled with praise and the mention of the glory of God. And then the second part was a father, Zacharias, speaking directly to his son, John. And I think we do uh, see that that pattern uh, reiterated in uh, in modern times. And uh, and and Zacharias's blessing is an example to uh, to all of us. So I I appreciate that about about Zacharias' blessing. Uh, one of the significant aspects of John's ministry, and I want to mention this before the time gets away from us, uh, seems to have been, or was, there's no seeming about it, uh, an important aspect of his ministry was uh, the, the training and preparing of future disciples yes. and apostles, even, of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was accomplished largely before Jesus began his three-year uh, divine ministry in in earnest. Um, yeah, I think sometimes we overlook that, but it, it's one of the most significant contribution of John's ministry, that preparation. So please keep going. Uh, uh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So these first followers and leaders of the early Christian movement were first cultivated and called and educated by John the Baptist. And so, so knowledgeable and powerful a teacher was John that during his ministry, those individuals that he first gathered to himself as disciples began to refer to him as rabbi. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and he has a, a pretty large uh, and, and uh, zealous following. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the interesting things that we discover uh, in the book of Acts was that John's reputation uh, as one of the great teachers, but also as a prophet, yeah. was, um, uh, was found out by, by Paul uh, at Ephesus some two decades or two and a half decades after John had already performed his mortal ministry. Uh, I, I, I was thinking about this this morning. So I have this passage um, prepared. If, I, uh, if you'll allow me to read it, this is from Acts chapter 19, verses one through five. And the point is here, again, as we're listening to this, to realize how powerful a reputation John had some 20 or 25 years after his death. I mean, he, he did... His fame and glory did not go away, even though John would have preferred to yeah. have it go away because he wanted uh, to put the Savior in the limelight. So here's Acts chapter 19, 1 through 5. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said, <clears throat> Paul says unto them, Well, then, unto what were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then Paul, then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people, 
that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is Jesus Christ. When these folks in Ephesus heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the point is, is that John had a following that lasted well beyond his, his mortal ministry. Uh, and, and even uh, John's followers who did not accept Jesus as the Messiah, uh, and I suppose that, that it was possible for them not to have done, simply <coughs> continued on believing that John was one of the great prophets of all time. So you're quite right. Uh, his, his reputation, his power, his authority uh, continued on after him uh, in, in a pretty significant way. And I think some of that, it's, it's helpful, I think, for us to kind of picture how John is thought of as, as to this group of Jews, because as, as we've said, we don't know a lot about his background and their traditions that he had to flee and grow up in the wilderness. And that's why he's eating locusts and so on. But, but he comes in the tradition of Elijah. And so here we, we come up against Elijah again. And I think we, un, we underestimate the importance of Elijah, not only for all of us Elias things that we've yeah. been talking about, but we'll, we'll follow through the rest of the new Testament, how his ministry affects the way uh, Elijah's ministry affects the way people understand the savior as he does the similar miracles and then surpasses them. But it also affects the way they see John, because Elijah was known as this prophet that came out of the wilderness. He was known for his his hairy garment and his leather girdle and, and being a wild man from the wilderness. And John comes just like that. And people seem to recognize him. Well, they, they, as far as we know, they haven't been recognizing prophets uh, really a lot before this. They recognize him as a prophet because he, he seems to be coming in that Elijah tradition. And so I think as we think about John, we also it's worth thinking about that uh, footprint that Elijah leaves on us. Well, <clears throat> since you have prepared the way for us to discuss, discuss uh, this connection between John and Elijah <clears throat> and John's association with the prophet Elijah, uh, maybe I can um, summarize what, what you just taught. Yeah, um, sorry if I, I took us where you weren't ready to go yet. Sorry. Well, no, 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 the, that's that's fine. Uh, but we know from from the scriptures and from uh, ecclesiastical history that early on in his ministry, John was identified and revered by many of the Jewish leaders as the great prophet Elijah come back to earth. He was, you know, Elijah was taken into heaven without tasting death. And now we have... John, who's functioning in the office or calling of an Elias in the priesthood, and people start to, to say, well, this really is Elijah come back. This is Elias come back. It's a natural assumption for the, the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people to, uh, to make because of some significant parallels. And you've mentioned uh, some of these. Um, first of all, uh, John, excuse me, first of all, Elijah had been translated, taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot, as it's described, without tasting death. So his return is expected. Yeah. And even today, Orthodox Jews, uh, particularly Orthodox rabbis of different communities around the world, uh, serve as judges. They serve as uh, 
counselors, spiritual counselors to people. And when they come across um, a, a question or an issue that they don't have a ready-made response for, uh, either from the scriptures or from the oral tradition called the Talmud, they simply refer to uh, the, the phrase teku, which means that it's an acronym for uh, the coming of Elijah and that these issues that we can't seem to figure out from scriptural precedent or oral tradition precedent, they'll be just, they'll be taken care of with the coming of Elijah. So Elijah is even mentioned uh, in, in Orthodox Jewish circles. Um, another point that you mentioned is that uh, John was this powerful, fearless preacher of righteousness without concern for his own welfare. That's, that's Elijah. Uh, Elijah confronted and spoke the truth to the power holders of society. And so did John. You can compare, for example, 1 Kings 18 and Matthew chapter 14, which uh, uh, is the uh, very gruesome description of John's uh, execution at the hands of Herod Antipas. Well, they both they both take on the kings who rule over them. So that's they, that is pretty impressive. Yeah, they are they are fearless. Uh, a third parallel, uh, like Elijah, John spoke and acted like a a great prophet, and in fact, Jesus himself. Uh, certified to the public that John was one of the greatest of all the prophets. Quote, but what went ye out to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Unquote. That's Jesus. That's Matthew 11. Jesus describing the virtue, the, the power the authority of John the Baptist. And he's he's declaring that to the audience that's in front of him. So I think that that, that is an important point to keep in mind. Uh, John performed water uh, baptisms, uh, baptism by immersion. And so did uh, Jews of John's day practice um, this purification, this ritual immersion, though they had lost uh, a lot of the true uh, doctrinal meaning and significance uh, still there the people in John's day are impressed by John's actions um, <clears throat> one that you mentioned which is pretty impressive John lived an aesthetic non-ostentatious lifestyle just like Elijah both Matthew and Mark in the gospels describe John as clothed with clothed with camel hair wearing a leather girdle about his loins. And the prophet Elijah, interestingly enough, is described in a similar way. And hairy man and girt with the girdle of leather about his loins. And, and I think maybe the hairiness of, of Elijah may be a reflection of the clothing yeah. he wore, just like John wore. Um, and, and then, of course... Uh, and maybe this is the most important point we can make in these parallels between John and Elijah is that John's activity fulfilled the description of Elijah's prophesied future mission outlined in the book of Malachi. Yeah. Um, according to Malachi, 
Elijah would be a forerunner sent by the Lord prior to his coming. Uh, the, this passage uh, in Malachi chapter four, verse verses uh, chapter three, verse one, chapter four, verse five. Quote, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. For behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, uh, unquote. So it's little wonder to me that the Jewish people of the Meridian Dispensation immediately looked upon John as the return of Elijah. And I think what we have, by the way, in the prophet Malachi is a dual prophecy both of the the former days and the latter days and that john and elijah perform very very similar roles as forerunners in these two different dispensations but but john and elijah both appearing in this last dispensation as forerunners so i i, I appreciated the the fact that you made those references because they're pretty powerful parallels that we find between John and Elijah. Yeah. So uh, one, one of the, one of the interesting things about John preparing future disciples uh, is his uh, consistent attempt at tra transferring the allegiance of his disciples to Jesus so John is one that wants to trant to wants to take his disciples, a, a pretty sizable group, I I think, and transfer their allegiance from himself to to John, and uh, <clears throat> and he does this, I think, by pointing his disciples to the scriptures. We have these passages in John chapter one where these disciples of John clearly see Jesus as the Messiah because they have been introduced to these messianic passages in, in the Old Testament, or what we would call the Old Testament. And, uh, and this is one of the powerful ways that John, I think, prepared his disciples to become disciples of Jesus, is he, he showed them from the scriptures that Jesus was the fulfillment of these prophecies. And, and it reminds us, I think, of, of Jesus' own words to the Pharisees uh, in Jerusalem. Certain, this is John 5, 39, I believe. He says, Jesus says, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. <laughs> so, uh, because of John's incredible knowledge of the scriptures, uh, we find an assessment of John given to us by the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, who says that, uh, that there was no one who knew the Old Testament better than the apostle paul except for john the baptist yeah. so an endorsement by uh the the great leader of the protestant revolution 
Martin Luther is a pretty high endorsement of John's knowledge of the scriptures, which he passed on to, to his uh, disciples. Uh, and, and, and again, you know, this passage in John chapter three keeps coming to mind where John says of Jesus, as he's attempting to transfer the allegiance of his disciples to Jesus, he says he must increase, meaning Jesus, but I must decrease. John is a man, I think, almost totally devoid of pride. Mm -hmm. Only wants to do what he's been sent to earth to do. He only wants to do what our Father in Heaven and his beloved Son wanted to do. He doesn't care about fame and and uh, and acclaim and all of the stuff that sometimes we mortals get caught up in. He only wants to do what uh, the Lord wants him to do. So my my appreciation for John uh, has uh, uh, obviously we we love and we worship the Savior, but uh, next to Jesus, I, I'm having a hard time thinking of a of a person that uh, that was as significant and great as uh, John the Baptist. And that's that leads me to my final comments about John. Right. Uh, Maybe before we do that, then, if it's yeah. all right, I'd just like to, to expand on just a little bit of what you're saying, because I, that's also something that really, uh, it, like uh, anytime I've been a counselor, I go back and, and read John to remember, okay, you know, there's, there's the role of a counselor so opposed to someone who presides and so on. But, but I think there's a larger pattern here that's really important that John exemplifies so perfectly for us. I think we see this consistently. We see it with the apostles. We see it all sorts of places in scriptures. And that's that the father sends the son and the son sends messengers out to get everyone else. And the, the job of those messengers is to point people towards the son so that the son will then point them towards the father. And we'll see that a number of times as we study the New Testament, that just as John deflects attention from himself to the savior, the savior deflects attention from himself to the father. Um, yeah. But I think that pattern is best exemplified by John. John is sent not to be the light that holds himself up to the world, right? What's the light we're right. to hold up? It's Christ. He holds Christ up to the world, and then Christ will bring people to the Father. But John is single-minded in this mission of bringing people to Christ. And if we... I should uh, exemplify, uh, follow the example of anyone besides the Savior, and, and we certainly should follow the Savior's example, but John is one that we should do that. Like That should be our single-minded mission as well, to point people to Christ, to have Christ be the light that we hold up so that he then can bring them to the Father. We can't bring them to the Father. We bring them to Christ. He brings them to the Father. Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's an important point to consider as we work our way through the, the New Testament uh, this this year um, that uh, and and I and I guess uh, I also go back to John's preparation and pre-mortality surely uh, the father had something to do with Jesus's preparation to be not just the Messiah but the great Jehovah and mm -hmm. I think surely the father had something to do with John's preparation to be the mighty forerunner uh, who, who, yeah, Elijah is, a, is an important parallel, but 
but wow, what John does to lay the foundation for the mortal Messiah is is really significant. Um, Agreed. But so let me let let me uh, kind of conclude with a, a discussion about the important lessons I think we learn, or at least some important lessons. It can't be a comprehensive list. Encourage everybody to make their own observations and their own comments. But uh, what are the what are some of the important lessons we learn from the life of of John the Baptist? And uh, and and I think first of all is the very point that you have made. Uh, the birth of John the Baptist was of monumental importance to the plan of salvation. Uh, John the Baptist's entry into mortality signaled our heavenly Father's careful planning and preparation to ensure the way that uh, and and to secure the way for his son's uh, mission uh, to prepare. Uh, the way for the one being in the entire universe who could put into effect all of the terms and conditions of the Father's plan of redemption uh, the, was um, was prepared for. The foundation was laid for uh, by John the Baptist. So, yes, the plan of our Father in heaven, and it is his plan, uh, required a Savior, a Redeemer. But when we think about it, the plan also seems to have required a forerunner, mm. and that forerunner was uh, John the Baptist. Uh, another lesson, we've already mentioned this many, many times, uh, John was the personification uh, of humility. Um, he was the exact opposite of those who engaged in priestcraft in Jesus's day. He always sought to step out of the limelight and put Jesus... Uh, in in the limelight and uh, and that is very very significant uh another thing i think um the time and the place of john's birth was predetermined but so are all of the births of our heavenly father's children and i think of uh, maybe one of the great overlooked passages in the new testament uh, that uh, that really helps us to answer a lot of questions about why things are the way they are in mortality. And you know that I'm uh, inching towards or referring to uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 26, where, where Paul shows up in Athens and he sees the statue to the unknown God. And in an attempt to, to teach the gospel, he said, you know, I see you guys are pretty religious pretty religious around here well let me tell you the, the truth about the gods quote unquote and then he, he he says what i think is one of the most important passages in the entire new testament quote god that made the world and all things therein hath made of one blood one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, unquote. In other words, what we see here in mortality is uh, based on things that happened in our pre-mortal existence. And I remember a statement by President Harry Lee who said, we, we talk about our rewards or punishments 
uh, in the next life predicated upon what happened here in this life? Why isn't it just as reasonable to assume that things that happen in this life or circumstances that we see were based on things that happened in pre-mortality? And, and that has to be uh, uh, the scene in that passage has to be John the Baptist who was prepared and tutored by our father in heaven uh, just like he heavenly father prepared and tutored Jesus Christ um I also think that uh, that we learn important lessons from uh, John's parents uh, Zacharias uh, and Elizabeth and uh, and these uh, I think promises uh, we have a tendency to look at and say, well of course you know god's going to fulfill his promises to to perpetuate the priesthood to bring about a forerunner but i don't think it was so clear cut in the minds of zacharias and elizabeth <clears throat> in fact i i think in in uh, zacharias and elizabeth we see uh, a righteous couple uh, who had done what the Lord was asking them to do, to live according to the way the Lord wanted them to live, and yet for many, many, many years had not been granted their cherished desire, which was to have a son or to have a child, uh, to a daughter. And, uh, and so this circumstance provides, at least for me, a model of, uh, of how uh, righteous desires even among those who are the most righteous in mortality are, are not always fulfilled immediately. Uh, and, and this applies to people in a variety of different ways, uh, not just couples who desperately want children but don't seem to be able to have them, but also um, people who desire marriage and it doesn't seem to be coming, or people who look back uh, on missed opportunities for education or uh, chances, uh, opportunities in, in other areas that just have remained unfulfilled. Well, this is Zacharias and Elizabeth. This is John's parents. And, uh, and this, I guess we could spend a whole time, a, a whole session talking about uh, the, the challenges of mortality. And the example of Zacharias and Elizabeth, who remain faithful, even though their cherished desires and dreams remain unfulfilled. Uh, Joseph Smith uh, explains the circumstance of Zacharias going into the temple uh, in the following words. He says, uh, quote, Zacharias knew that the promise of God must fail. Consequently, he went into the temple to wrestle with God to obtain the promise of a son, unquote. In other words, um, it, wasn't in, it wasn't perfectly clear to Zacharias that, uh, that the priesthood would continue on uh, without the birth of a son. And here he faces, you know, childlessness. <clears throat> so I think um, we're back to one of the great principles taught in the Book of Mormon, that uh, the greatest endowments of light and spiritual power 
come only after the trial of our faith in, in Ether chapter 12, verse 6. And that is Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zacharias going into the temple to wrestle with God for a blessing. And uh, and this, this theme was picked up by Brigham Young, who said all of us are situated pretty much on the same ground in that we must struggle, wrestle, and strive for these blessings sometimes uh, until the Lord bursts the veil and allows us to behold his glory or at least a portion of his glory in the miracles that we see in our lives. So I, I find Zacharias and Elizabeth a great model for, <clears throat> for all of us. Um, I, I uh, also uh, uh, think that uh, it would be impossible to understand the ministry of Jesus without understanding the mission of John the Baptist. Uh, before John baptized the Messiah, he served as a forerunner, an Elias of the Savior's ministry. After he baptizes Jesus, John serves as a witness of Jesus's messianic identity, and he was happy to, to do so. Um, I, I, this is a passage that means a, a great deal to me. Uh, I, I want to read it because I think it's the essence of John the Baptist's personality. And uh, this is from John chapter 3, verses 25 to 29. Quote, Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples, meaning John the Baptist, and the Jews about purifying. And they came to John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. That's unquote. <clears throat> um, so here John is talking about um, the, the bride or the church and the bridegroom or Jesus, but he identifies himself as the friend of the bridegroom who rejoices greatly because he had the privilege of hearing the voice of the bridegroom. This is the essence of the life of, uh, of John the Baptist. Uh, in summary, I would simply say that, uh, that John's ministry continued on after uh, his mortal life ended. John never stopped serving. His master, he sealed his testimony with his blood, but he left a record which John the Apostle used literally to craft the introduction of his gospel record. So John the Apostle uses the record of John the Baptist to introduce his own testimony of Jesus, and that's found in John chapter 1. Uh, how many of us 
<laughs> have relied on the work of others to present the core of our message. And this is what yeah. John the Apostle does when he uses the record of John the Baptist. And that record apparently will be given to us someday. Uh, John the Baptist appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is, comes as a surprise to, to non-Latter-day Saints, but we have the benefit of the Joseph Smith translation, who tells us that John the Baptist appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration during Jesus's ministry. He appeared as a disembodied spirit, I think, to support his, uh, his relative Jesus. Uh, the, the scriptures talk about them being cousins but i don't i don't think we know the exact relationship i think that the greek word simply means that they were related somehow um, a minor point but i think an important one and that uh that john the baptist as a disembodied spirit again is there to act as a witness of the important events that took place on the mount of transfiguration so uh in these latter days, John has returned literally. His power and authority have again been felt as he restored the keys of the Oral priesthood, um, as described in Doctrine and Covenants 13. Again, in the role of a forerunner uh, before the Melchizedek priesthood is restored. So still that, that forerunner role. Uh, let me conclude. Our time is far spent, but let me conclude by saying that from my perspective, uh, no greater man has ever lived on the earth than John the Baptist, except for Jesus himself. And this seems to be what Joseph Smith wants us to understand. This is what the prophet Joseph said, quote, Christ came according to the words of John, Mark chapter one, verse seven. And he was greater than John because he held the keys of the Melchizedek priesthood and the kingdom of God, and had before revealed the priesthood to Moses. Yet Christ was baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness. He was entrusted with the, with the important mission, and it was required at his hands to baptize the Son of Man. Whoever had the honor of doing that, whoever had so great a privilege and glory, unquote. So I think, from my perspective, no person will ever equal the Savior in greatness, and no one will ever surpass the stature of Jesus's forerunner, namely John the Baptist. I am grateful to know about his life, and uh, if, I, if I make it to that place where Jesus and John reside, I want to spend a good long time with John and uh, really plumb the depths of, of his personality, his commitment, uh, and his love of the Savior. Amen and amen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andy. And we hope this has uh, uh, been helpful for our audience and that they may have someone in mind that it would be helpful for as well, and you can uh, share it with them. And, and uh, I know as I've listened to you, my commitment to... Uh, but the kingdom of God and pointing people towards Christ has increased. And I, I hope that's happened for everyone. So thank you. Thank you very much.